You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Hello, welcome to Plato's Cave. Uh, thanks to Fee for the last three hours of maps. There was a lovely little bit of the Drive soundtrack in there that has set us up for Plato's Cave tonight. My name is Alex Helen-Nicholas. I'm here with Ceres Howard and Christos Cholkis. Behind the panel for us tonight is Carl Chapman because our dear comrade in arms, Thomas Caldwell, is not here. Has abandoned us. That's not sugarcoating. <laughs> yes, he's run away. How are we going, team? Yeah, super. I mean, I have abandonment issues, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> you're going to help me Soldier work through on. them, I hope. This, this Christos, are you okay? I'm okay. Yeah. Um, whatever abandonment issues I have, I'm going to leave them outside the cave for, for the moment. Thank you very much for um, inviting me back in. Lovely, this lovely to have you. my favourite cave in the whole world. <laughs> Tonight we are home and away with two films from old international friends and one that brings us a little closer to home. Later we'll be talking about the most recent film from Spanish darling Pedro Almodovar, Julieta, and The Handmaiden by Korean sweetheart Park Chan-wook. But first up, let's go to Canberra. There, that's something I didn't think that I'd be saying on radio. We're going to kick off with a chat about Sotiris Dinocus's book. Film of the same. (laughs) He didn't write the book. Um... Film of the same name as Helen Garner's 2004 book, Joe Chinque's Consolation. The film, like the book, concerns the death in Canberra of 26-year-old Joe Chinque, played in the movie by Jerome Mayer, at the hands of his girlfriend Anu Singh, played by Maggie Nari, in October 1997. In separate trials, Singh's friend uh, Madhavi Rao, uh, played by Sasha Joseph in the film, was fully acquitted of all charges relating to her alleged involvement, and Singh received a lesser manslaughter conviction due to what the judge accepted was her diminished mental state. But where Ghana's book famously follows the trial itself and her relationship with Chinque's mother, the film picks, uh, instead tracks all the events leading up to it, the couple meeting, courting, living together, and then things spiralling out of control. This is the second film about the Chinque case that I know of, the first being Scott Murden's decidedly Anglo, Anglo horror film, The Dinner Party from 2009, also made in Canberra. But this is the one that certainly is getting the most attention, recently playing at both MIF and the Toronto International Film Festival. Christos, you and I talked about this when we you joined did. us for our MIF show, and uh, it felt even then that we could spend a whole hour just talking about this one film. Um, I'm very keen to hear your both of your thoughts at length about this movie, because it's a corker. A corker. Mm. A cracker. It may be interesting to start with you, Cerise, because um, Alex and I, we, we discussed it very, mm. very briefly on the... Yeah, um, and you both had Canberra connections. That's um, right. Someday we'll find it, the Canberra yeah. connection. Well, yeah. I was actually... Uh, I, I, I was living in Canberra for two and a half years and I moved just as the... Um, uh, just as the case... I mean, the, the events that this film depicts happened. Um, uh, clearly, I was at a remove, but I just remember... Clearly. Allegedly. But, um, look, uh, uh, there's a lot, as, as Alex, um, you've indicated, there's a lot to say um, and discuss about this film, but it would be maybe, yeah, start us off, Cerise. Well, I, I do actually recall when you were both talking about this some months ago, you, you spoke of the a peculiarity to the performances, that there was some sort of a, almost naive performance style. If I, if I remember exactly, I, I don't remember your exact words, but that, that stuck with me while I watched this film and it was... Because early on, I was thinking all of the everyone just seemed either performing as if the the dialogue they'd been given was a little underdone, or that they were deliberately mannered for some reason that I actually myself couldn't grasp. I, I thought people had gone to quite a bit of trouble to to um, 
to shoot the film rather nicely, light it well, but then everyone in the, the, the film is performing a little bit stiltedly. And, and I really struggle to pin down why anyone would do that deliberately unless as... Uh, I mean, look, you people have spent a lot more time in Canberra than I. I was there uh, the weekend before last for an immersive Canberra experience, but largely centred around the National Film Sound Archive. But I got to have a bit of the Canberra, um, uh, you know, a taste of the the life there, such as it is, uh, bunnies and parrots and occasionally (laughs) human beings. Lots of uh, roundabouts. Lots of roundabouts. Mm. No sense of my bearings at any time (laughs) I was there. And um, I I found it a very odd place. Now, I I knew nothing of this, the true events that this film was based on. I'd never read the book either. Uh, And all I knew about was just casting my mind back to Miff and noting Mm. this film's inclusion and that it had previously screened in Toronto. Uh, It's it's just screened. Oh, it's only just screened. Oh, okay. So So Miff was the premiere. premiere. Okay, okay. Um, Okay, so but but back then you you did speak at some length because you had both of you quite a lot to say about Mm. this film and and some sense of connection to the the city which spawned these events. I guess maybe that's a question how much of these events is somehow Canberra? Look, for me. Um, and, and I've seen it twice now, so I saw it at MIF and um, I saw it again quite recently. Um, and for me, the Canberra connection is what, what what's interesting about it is that Canberra is this city in our consciousness that it's our capital. It's um, the, the, the city of parliament. Uh, and yet it also is a place that a lot of Australians view with contempt. They either see it as solace. We were talking about that just just before, or they see it as because it is um, the, the the place of power that that somehow it is illegitimate. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that Canberra is a place. I, I, it isn't that it is completely middle class. I think there is a, a really interesting subterranean world that exists in Canberra. I hope as so. Well. I mean, yeah, there it is. certainly Absolutely. does. But what fascinates me about uh, Joe Chinque's Consolation is that it is a film that, for me, is about a particular kind of class in Australia, the academic class, the um, educated class, the uh, knowledge class, and it's about young people at university and the way we perform when we are at university. I'm not assuming everyone who's listening to that has that experience, but I think that is what is a interesting way of um, coming to an understanding of what the film does. It's it's uh, the question of adaptation for me of Joe Chinkwe's Consolation, and I, I think it, I, I'm, I'm a real fan of this film. But it's a it's a strange word to use because although it has the same title as um, Garner's book, it is doing a very very different thing. I think Garner's book was really about the consequences of um, this terrible act. And the consequences on a family, and the um, and Joe Chinquis, particularly his parents and his brother, and also just confronting that question, which is a really hard question, is can the legal system ever do true justice? Can the legal system um, ever um, make amends to what uh, Chinquis' parents and brother experienced through through these events? I think Sotiris Donukis' film is doing something else. It is exposing a particular class or social class and Mm. the way we perform when we are part of that social class and I think I had the exact same response first time I saw the film I thought why are these people a little bit they're just just a bit skew with somehow and and I think actually within I don't know 25 minutes of that I I, I suddenly felt 
into the story and I think it's because at that age and as, as part of that world that's what we do we perform because we're we're on that cusp between adolescence and 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 adulthood and I was really I think that film I think the film really captures a kind of yearning to be adult mm-hmm. yearning to be um, part of the world to come and not really being sure how to manage it that's one one of the things that's happening the the other thing for me is that there's an element of crime and Australian culture. Mm-hmm. Going back to, to kind of the, the white settlement, the European settlement of this country in, in the convict history. And so you have, um, you know, a history of just recently, you know, over the last 20 years, films like Snowtown and um, The Boys and um, even, you know, fictionalised versions like Suburban Mayhem, which take on the, the character of the... Um, of the criminal and mm-hmm. what, it, it, what it exposes about our, our world. But usually it's about working-class culture or underclass culture. What I find fascinating about this film is it's about middle-class culture and educated culture, well, and I think that is what's interesting. There also seems to be crime indexed to mental health very clearly and, and female mental health yeah. in particular. And that's where the film's most interesting to me because this is um, a, a woman who's painted as mad throughout the film by almost everybody within it, including her partner, who yet... Is himself painted as of, crimi- with, of, of criminal intentions by first setting her off on that path somehow by giving her the dreaded vomiting drug Ipecac long way back, which somehow set off a snowballing series of uh, you know, increasing drug intake and, and um, pharmaceuticalization, for want of a word that exists. It's, um, I, 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 a connection with a film just occurred to me actually. That's, uh, I don't know, do you remember Ryan Johnson's film Brick? Which, oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. We yeah. set up a um, school students of a very younger. Noir, wasn't it? It, it was very based noir. on. Was it, what was it based on? It's based on a famous a, on. sort of loose remake of a very famous of film a, noir. Yeah, but in a just after or just at the end of high school mm. sort of um, age and milieu, and there was a, a kingpin running out of this mum's basement or something. And this has that in a way too. A really banal drug dealers here. There's none of that usual um, sense of people of. Uh, a different socio-economic group. This is all... Uh, the, the drug dealers here are just ordinary Canberra folk living in ordinary Canberra places, and they are desperately middle class. And that, to me, is a bit fresh. Uh, you know, I'm used to a certain Australian crime um, mm. cultures shown on, on film here. They're usually... The other. That's, yeah. Let's yeah, be yeah, the yeah. Other, yeah. frank about it. Absolutely. Yeah, and they're not othered in this yeah, film. Yeah. They are the same as the other... Um, <laughs> the other. The, the, they're just the same. Yeah. They're just the same as these the really asked. bland white... But not entirely white, uh, the student body at this oh, film. I mean, oh. actually, uh, sorry to interrupt this, Cerise, but actually that, I remember talking about it um, on, the, on the show when I was here last that for me that is actually one of the things that is, um, I'm going to use the word th- thrilling about it in that, and I think why this film is difficult, and it remains difficult for me even after having seen it twice, is yeah, that it doesn't actually, um, this world, this, uh, this you know, this quite very privileged world that we're saying it's not white you know anu singh is a woman of um indian background um madhavi um uh i'm just uh, trying to remember madhavi rao who Mm. is one of her friends and who was also um put on trial as well for for the murder is also from a, a an asian background but that is kind of assumed as part of what this world is now and i think that there's something quite exciting that's why i use the word thrilling mm. about um 
seeing what I feel is the true urban Australian mm-hmm. experience represented. But what's, I think, disquieting, and that's the word about this film, is that then it it kind of ha- challenges our notions of good and evil. It yeah, challenges it our notion really of who does. are the good guys and who are the bad guys. It challenges our notions of uh, redemption and culpability and... In that sense, even though it's very, very different from what Garner is doing in her book, I think it shares um, it shares something with her project. I have such a complicated relationship to this film, and I think I said that when we did the Myth Show, and I don't think I've actually moved through it. A friend of mine, almost off the cuff in a joking way, uh, who has read the book, I haven't read the book, um, she said uh, um, that the film is almost a new Sings consolation, which I thought was, that just really opened up a new way for me of thinking about what was happening in this movie. Um, I'm so... I have such complicated relationship to it, um, and I think I said this on the Myth Show, because I grew up in Canberra at that time. I was a couple of years behind them at uni. So I was just starting at uni when they were... when the film starts, when the couple meet. And my boyfriend at the time's band poster is literally in the scene where they're, they're talking for the first time. They weren't a big band, so... That's three, is it? Um, the band three? I saw that poster conspicuously No, early Ken. This Ken. was Ken. Oh. Shout out. Um, <laughs> yeah. Hi, guys. Um, Reform. Reform yeah. or no? <laughs> I've got no idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think this is. I mean, first of all, I have to say this is a. This is this film is how I remember Canberra at that age, being at uni. I think it's almost documentary realism to the point that that's how people behaved. That's how I remember it. Like it, it really threw me. I've never had that experience before. Canberra, we don't see on film no. that that kind of Canberra. We see political intrigue rarely, but. I've just never seen the Canberra that I knew on film before and that came as a real shock. Things like what I think was the art school ball, which isn't referenced in there, but it's almost like a little knowing wink if you come from Canberra, the big social thing every year is the art school ball and I think that's where um, uh, Madhavi goes after the dinner party. Uh, I'm positive that that was the art school ball. It's like, was I at that one? Was I at the one the year before? Those little moments, you know, that's just absolutely astounding. Um, And that campus, the beautiful ANU campus, which just doesn't look like anything else in this country. It's just a gorgeous space. And I get really conflicted about this because it's like, what am I doing? This is such a tragic, real story. And yet here I am thinking about my own experience with Canberra and those kind of triggers that I've experienced with the film. And it's taken me a while to get to the point, but I think it's what's so powerful for me and what's so potent is that it ties into the Ghana because it's asking questions about whose stories do we have the right to tell? Who has the right to tell other people's stories? What do, what gets lost in translation? What happens over time? Um, all of those kind of questions that we really need to think about. And, and at the premiere, a, a remarkable gentleman stood up and said pr- precisely that, you know, this is real stuff that happened to real people uh, in the Q&A section. And it's, I think, just cinema broadly, you know, when we're dealing with real things it's these are really powerful potent questions that perhaps don't usually hit as personally home for me quite like this film did i still i can't make a qualitative call on this film because i've never experienced anything like it in the cinema for very personal reasons um just because it's it is how i remember the place and i think it was the heroin culture i've so many people i know say people just don't take drugs like that it's like you went in canberra in the mid 90s it was so so common i'm I'm glad you said that that there is something about the way and again you know in comparison to a lot of um previous australian films which have you know looked at true crime or Mm. or use the um the um an atrocious murder or or a a crime as a way of Exploring something about uh, Australian society, the drug use has all always been about 
either you know criminal class or underclass or and and this film says no this is how middle class people how students are taking drug and that felt incredibly authentic to me and i kind of um and it's interesting when people do respond and go, no, no, I don't. That's not what happens, and it's exactly it's what exactly happens. how I remember, and it. it's taken as as normal. Mm-hmm. It's, and and in, the, in those streets and in that location with those kind of people, it's my memories of my my youth. Um, really powerful, really really potent. I think the other thing, uh, uh, um, and it's and thinking of what you were saying, Alex. I think there is something about you know you try. You know, there's a sense of you need to be objective when you're a film critic. Mm. But really, when you have a film from within your culture, from within your class, from within your your world, there are certain resonances that are very, very different to, you know, if this was a film set in London, if this was a film set in Prague, if this was, even if it was around a group of students, we would have different reactions Mm -hmm. to it. Um, I think there is something about the... Uh, that multicultural world that is taken as a given, that drug world that's taken as as a given, that immediately threw me into that film. In terms of what you were saying, Cerise, about the Singh's um, mental illness, and the, mm. the reason she she wasn't charged with murder, she was charged with manslaughter and got a reduced sentence, was that it, she was seen as I can't remember what the uh, a legal diminished term, responsibility. responsibility. Mm. But there is an element to and. I think your friend was right saying that in, an, in a way this is Anu Singh's consolation because it takes... Anu Singh refused to, to, to speak to Ghana. She was clearly... She was incarcerated or had just recently been released when um, Ghana wrote a book. And in a way it humanises her. And inevitably that's what film does, mm-hmm. you know, because we are seeing part of this story through Singh. We're doing it, seeing it through her friends. We're seeing it through um, her world. But I... It would be... Terrible if a film called Joe Cinque's Consolation also didn't give some of consolation course. to the man, and I think that and it has to be about him. Yes, of course, it's his, it's his story, of and I think that's what haunts me. It's like I keep defaulting to it being my story, and it's like no, I don't, no. I can't, I don't have the right to do that to this person's memory. Exactly, and um, I think it, I, I think it's a really hard thing at the moment to play. What is a decent man? Mm. You know, for, yeah. for various reasons to do with culture and politics and uh, the knowledge of history that we all have about masculinity and histories of misogyny. And I thought that Jerome Mayer was terrific as Joe Chinque in actually making him, humanising him and giving him... Look, I, I was in tears the first time and I was in tears again the second time when the, the, this man... Um, and, and it happened in the scene where a friend of his who he works with hears about his death. And it's like... You know, I, I felt that the film had actually honoured both um, Ghana's intention in saying that we need to make some consolation for this life mm-hmm. that was taken really young, but it also was, and this would have been a very hard task, incredibly fair-minded about an, a new thing. Having said I think that, I agree with that. Yeah. Having said that, there was um, I saw it the second time I saw it. I saw it with my partner, and he made a really interesting point. And I, I'm just I, I just want to raise it with both of you as a. And he said, I think people are divided about this film because it's all going to be depend on whether you've had an, a new sing in your life. That is absolutely. I mean, that's what really left me numb about this film. Aside from the the shocking tragedy of the story itself, and I know they sound a little bit hollow to talk about something like this with words like you know kind of tabloid words but i she really rang true for me and and um satiris dunokas saying oh, this will really haunt me at the q a he said this film is about the failure of community 
and that absolutely haunts my sleep because I think that at the core of this film, that's exactly what it is. It's that everybody knew. Everybody knew. Everybody had the information and nobody did anything. If you've had an Anu Singh in your life, if you've been the Anu Singh in other people's mm-hmm. lives, figuratively, yeah. um, I mean, if you know, if you've been an unstable young woman or a young st- unstable young man, you know what it's like—the desperation that she feels. But to me, um, I'm, I'm still puzzled by the motivations of her accomplice. Um, this character is truly an enigma. Madame Rowe. Yes. Yeah. She, Perhaps it's right that she stays an enigma. Because, yeah. yeah. Well, I, to try to explain away her conduct could only be extremely difficult because it is utterly baffling. I think that was what um, Wayne's response, uh, of what, what Wayne's um, comment, why, why it really stuck with me, and I've, I've been thinking about it ever since, is that I have been her. Now, thankfully, yeah. never to an extent where I facilitated or encouraged or um, allowed behaviour to get out, out of control to such an extent. But I do remember, my, you know, I'm, things that I'm very, very ashamed of, of, of having people in my life who were such powerful personalities, so um, magnetic, mm-hmm. so beautiful, and beauty has, some, has a certain attraction to... Uh, um, and who were clearly um, unstable, who were clearly fabulous, who were clearly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, creating, destroying the worlds around them. And I, being young, being entranced, being al- cowardly, I allowed those people to, um, um, to get away with really shameful and deplorable behaviour. Thankfully, it was not um it was no one who was as um clearly ill or whatever term you want to use yeah, as, as yeah. sing but that's why i think um that f- the film has a particular resonance for me absolutely i saw myself in um uh madavi rao um and i think sasha joseph like like a lot of the cast is he's, he's terrific in this film because that that question of what is the motivation yes. is a really hard one It seems on the face of it unanswerable. There's no rational excuse for that behaviour, which is where the fascination lies in it. And I think the the reason, Cerise, is because it's intoxication, it's cowardice, it's... um, Youth. Youth. Yeah. And that's... You and know. drugs, like yeah, all those, <laughs> all that all stuff, and that intensity, Canberra, and Canberra, <laughs> and all those, all those roundabouts are making people dizzy. And what, like. I mean, I've been really fascinated by a critical response to the film because, in a way, um, again, you know, stepping outside the objectivity of film criticism, we come from a particular, you know, a lot of us, not all, mm. not all of us, thank God, but a lot of us come from a particular world and a particular um, educational system and training and way of looking at the world, and we see what I see is that film reflecting that world back to us. And I think that's why it's going to remain a disquieting film. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Well, we're going to take a little bit of a turn towards something a bit more upbeat, perhaps, than the remarkable Joe Chinque's Consolation that we've just been chatting at length about um let's talk about julieta beginning in 1980 with peppy lucy bomb julieta is almodovar's 20th feature film and like volvo all about my mother and the flower of my secret his most recent film sees him returning to a strong central woman character the film stars two women playing the eponymous title role emma suarez who's in her early 50s and adriana ugate who's in her 30s 
Julieta is structured through a letter. The older Julieta is writing to her estranged, now adult daughter, Antia. Filmed in flashback, Adriana Ugarte picks up the younger Julieta and we journey through her relationship with both Antia's father and Antia herself. Based on three short stories from the 2004 collection Runaway by Nobel and Man Booker Prize winning Canadian author Alice Munro, Julieta feels both like old Almodovar um, in some ways, but at the same time I think it's also consolidating his decades-long experience behind the camera, perhaps stronger than in many of his most recent films. Discuss. Well, the... M- most recent film prior to this was awful. I'm so excited. I'm so excited! Exclamation mark! Yeah, gotta, I'm so excited. Yeah, terrible. Clearly, none of us were. <laughs> no, no, we were dismayed. <laughs> Whereas this feels very much like a return to the style and uh, thematics of his more recent. Um, oh, they're quite melodramatic films, mm. and I don't mean that in any sort of pejorative sense whatsoever. Because people usually dispense that word with a sneer, but not I. Um, this, this, well, you say this was going to be a more cheerful um, <laughs> uh, film to talk comparatively, about. But, comparatively. Well, comparatively. Yep. Okay. Well, there, but there's still a film uh, suffused with mourning and uh, anxiety over a mystery uh, and an inexplicable absence in somebody's life and trying to get to the bottom of it via certain um, typical, very familiar, but beautiful Amodovar manoeuvres and. And uh, that the look of this film uh, is is so redolent of this. The the films ever since was it about Flower of My Secret, where we really began down this path. It was quite some time back. Yeah, I think Flower of My Secret. Yeah, that was the turning point. Um, Perhaps he hit his apotheosis with All About My Mother, which I can barely even invoke the name of without getting teary. (laughs) I think that's. I was I was just thinking about all about about my mother when you know, knowing that I'm coming on the show to discuss this film. And, you know, I just feel like if there's a capsule of work that we want to send out to aliens to go, I know we're a completely (laughs) terrible species, but there is... We are capable of doing some beautiful things. I'd want to put that film We got it once a couple of... We got it right a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. I support that. Yeah. Ditto me. That film's gorgeous. And the humanism that permeates all of his films from that period onward, and I suppose it was there previously too, but just rather more burlesqued. All of those early films are so full of um, uh, flamboyance and and high camp and and occasionally aiming to offend. I love them. Yeah. But th- this is a very sober film. There's still a couple of chuckles, perhaps, in there from memory. And, and like you, Chris, just as we were saying before we got on the air, we, neither of us have seen this just recently. We're casting our minds back to our, our MIF screening. I was quite uh, affected by this film. Not, not to say devastated, but uh, I, I felt it was such a return to form after the horror that was. I'm so <laughs> excited. And I, I really in- enjoyed it, teasing out some very familiar almost Hitchcockian themes of... Um, well, I mean, there's some strangers on a train in this film that kick-start the plot, you could say, and lead to some primal scene-type action. Uh, there's a, a number of um, intriguing characters, and there's a, at least... How many love triangles would you say there are in this film? There's a good couple, at least. Yeah. There's, there's and little, a, little penis statues, too. Little, little penis statues. <laughs> Don't forget the little penis statues. I had forgotten the little penis statues. That More felt like a me. nod to the past. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> To the naughty old motorway. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, it's, it's still not as like this film's chased exactly. No, no. But it, it's not uh, in your face trying to... I mean, it's not Kika. <laughs> <laughs> it's not tie me up, tie me down. <laughs> no. 
No, but it's, it is a really lovely and quite moving film about An something that is quite un- universal. This, this thing that haunts all of us its varying points, unpredictable points in our life, just this whole business of loss and trying to come to yeah. terms with it, especially if it seems to all uh, extents and purposes inexplicable. And this is the journey the t- titular character is on, is just trying to get to the bottom of something literally at first as a, as a mission and then years thereafter having being haunted by a sudden re-emergence of a possibility of getting to the bottom of it and then you know, we experience the film in flashback and it's all very elegantly structured uh very classical really yeah. and uh it's a gorgeous piece of work it's really in love with those women's films i think of, yeah. you know that kind of classical hollywood um, and I mean, even just the colour palette, the way that he uses yellow, it's just one of my favourite things in life. I realise that makes me sound like a simpleton, but I just love how Almodovar uses the colour yellow. I, I don't, there's no other filmmaker I can think offhand that really uses it in quite the same way that he does. I just get such joy from it. And I love that there's a little bit of nostalgia in here almost for his own His own work. work. Oh, um, I love um, Julieta's hair when she's young because she looks straight from one of those Pepe Lucy Bomb era. Yeah. Films, you know, she looks like an earlier Modova character, and I, just the way she dresses and her little haircut. And, and I, having I kind of a, love that. Uh, Rossi de, de Palma, Palma that, that come, you know, who's one of the great faces yeah. in cinema. Kind of her being in, in in the film as well. I mean, I was. It's interesting after um, I'm so excited, which was, you know, it was a, it was so um, shockingly bad. It yeah. felt like I mean, not that you know, he's he's you know one of the great directors you know when you just think about it the number of films he's made the number of films i've loved that that he's made but it felt like um i hate doing this i'm not trying to psycho psychologize that but it's like he was trying to return with i'm so excited to some of that anarchic Mm -hmm. early work um when he was the enfant terrible of not uh, of european cinema really just coming out of the franco era and just kind of just putting a huge mustache over the mona lisas mm-hmm. of, yep. of of spain and it felt like he just got it so wrong that the 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 campness of those original films that was groundbreaking and truly audacious just felt really safe and yeah. tired yeah there was no punk rock spirit in i'm so excited no no, no. that absolutely right series and what i felt with um Juliette is that it was kind of after that going okay i'm I, I think one of the things that is stunning about the film is um is uh, other performances i agree and i feel like you know what i might have doing is looking at this woman who has a lot of regrets and um has suffered um the the pain of love and the pain of loss and knows that she may not be forgiven and kind of uh uh, creating an aria in this work and doing it so assuredly and doing it with the um uh, you know when you were talking about the the color palette that's one of the things i love about um I don't, you're right, Alex. I don't think there's another f- filmmaker working today who uses colour so joyously. Mm-hmm. And that is part of the uh, melodramatic tradition. But it's almost like I, I keep sometimes thinking that Almodovar is the Catholic to uh, Fassbinder's Protestantism. Another like, good director yeah, with yeah, yellow, too. Fassbinder and, understood yellow. And um, understanding the uh, centrality of the woman's experience yes. and, and what it says about our lives. Yeah, Todd Haynes keys in on that as well. Similarly with the, the colour, the love of colour and patterns and decor. And Car- um, Carol's a good red film. Yes. And a just great m- red film. Mise-en-scene is communicative mm. of mental states and emotional states and, and even just seasonal, uh, picking particular times of year so that the colour of landscape reflects 
internal states of people too as they go on their journeys. I, um, I, I found that found this film still though not somehow quite to be vintage El Motiva. It felt like a return to form but not peak form maybe because I, I, I still felt he was trying a little bit too much to acknowledge past glories. There's, there's a in a way this is quite elegant there's a, a little red herring at the beginning where when Julieta first sees a familiar face in a street scene and there's this very androgynous figure there as well just a total red herring actually but for me that gets me excited i think oh our motor has got got a real good sort of queer and something going to seep into this film and it's actually a total red herring and i kind of admire that but also think but then that feels kind of token too why why, why? because this person meets the camera's gaze Mm -hmm. and stares right back at you the viewer and i found that intriguing but then also just a little bit annoying but i quickly let that go (laughs) and got sucked into the the mystery I think Emma Suarez, her performance in particular, she just, I mean, she's she's so weary and and defeated and she just keeps moving. And I just love her performance yeah. so much. I just, um, I think uh, Adriana Agate is wonderful as the younger Julieta, but to me it's just uh, Emma Suarez who just really, really pulled me into this film. I really loved that that weariness but that refusal to be defeated but without it being corny or you know it's just this sort of you just keep trucking yeah. you know you just I'm, I'm old and i don't have a choice and i just have to keep moving you know just quite understated in a way in such a kind of hepped up film in so many ways i just thought her performance was really in contrast actually a little bit almost understated i thought she was great look i i, I think you know, I, I agree, Cerise, that, uh, you know, that there's so many Almodovar films that I love and this one isn't, you know, it isn't one that I love, that I ha- fell in love with. But I would say to anyone listening that just, I mean, there are so many joys to have out of this film because this is a filmmaker at his, you know, who is one of the creative greats and just for Suarez's performance. Yep. You know, Yellow just, and Suarez. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's enough, I think, to... Um, to uh, give yourself over to the film. It's interesting about someone like this filmmaker. Uh, I have a, f- a friend um, who saw it at, at the film festival and he just fell in love with the film and he's, he, he still talks about that final scene for him. Is, Beautiful. Um, this makes him howl in the way, you know, if I think like you about all about my mother, uh, I, I, I howl. But also, you know, the opening scene to Volver is for me one of the great moments in, in, in cinema and that's one of the remarkable things about this man you know his uh, his work is that i think we all have those individual re- reactions to films and 20 films it's pretty uh, impressive and you know there's i mean apart from i'm so excited i there's not one that i regret watching or feel like i've wasted my time with you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r in melbourne australia Let's talk about The Handmaiden. It is the Korean director Park Chan-wook's highly anticipated follow-up to his 2013 English-language film uh, debut, Stoker. Now, once again, Park finds himself immersed in a world of woman-driven intrigue, and like Stoker before it, The Handmaiden is concerned with the power dynamics between women in what are contextually configured as sexually transgressive scenarios. Changing the original Victorian-era location to 1930s Korea under Japanese colonial rule, The Handmaiden is a reimagining of Sarah Waters' 2002 Man Booker-nominated novel Fingersmith. Although the setting is far from that of the Welsh author's original book, Park keeps the basics of the plot relatively intact. 
Knowing little of life outside of petty crime, Sukhi, played by Kim Tae Ri, is enlisted by the slick con man Count Fujiwara, played by Ha Young Woo, to accept a job in the service of a wealthy Japanese woman, Lady Hideko, uh, played by Kim Min Hee. Before he can execute his plan to marry Lady Hideko and take control of her fortune, Sukhi's romantic attachment to her new employer complicates matters, triggering a series of intrigues and double crosses that results in a lavishly rendered lesbian love story. What did you guys make of The Handmaiden? I'm going to use a word that I have often hear Cerise using when I'm listening to your show, Uh-oh. and it's a hoot. <laughs> <laughs> it is a hoot. It's it actually is, the best word for It's for technically the film. a hoot. Oh. That would be such a great tag. Right? <laughs> I would love to see a poster for the handman and Christos Trotkin. It's a hoot. It's, a hoot. <laughs> it's such a good word, Cerise. Thank and you. a romp. I'm stealing, it f- I'm stealing it from you. A romp? <laughs> I think it's equally a romp. Um, wow. Speaking of the double crosses, it's not just the characters. I mean, the whole yeah. film is an exercise in narrative double crossing. There's a lot of information being withheld at key turning points in this narrative by the narrator every bit as much as the um, the, the characters are all playing games with one another. Um, I, I presume this reflects the original uh, book. I, I recall a BBC adaptation sometime. I haven't read the book but I'm pretty sure yeah. that I've seen that because this rang a lot of bells for me. In fact there seemed to be a whole period there where the BBC was going crazy for Sarah Waters adaptations. I remember Tipping, tipping the, the Velvet, velvet with and Diana Riggs' daughter I think was Yeah I don't recall the personnel but I, I, I recall that there was just quite it's quite a vogue for The it, ABC so. in the Victorian era, what a surprise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well that's it but then they were I wouldn't ever say they were quite salacious, they were still uh, broadcast friendly prior to sort of HBO era yeah. Uh, shenanigans suddenly becoming permissible on free-to-air, not free-to-air, usually actually the other thing, the what's it, streaming these days, whatever those subscription services are called in shorthand. Anywho, uh, this this film trans- feels much more transgressive than those BBC productions ever did anyway. But that's something expected from Park Chan-wook, who's always had a, a real flair for mixing sex and violence and Baroque um, imagery, but also effect. I think he, he, he really does like to try to make audiences feel things, often pain, but pleasure too. And the, the sex scenes in this film uh, and, and all of the scenes leading up to those sex scenes, which make those sex scenes all the more inevitable, you're always feeling that sense of, come on, let's just get there. Come on, Park, stop withholding that as well. Surely this, this levy's going to break. Uh, you get a real sense that... We, the, the feelings of the characters are very much meant to be transmitted to the audience. He's very good at doing that. And um, the, the scenes where uh, Hideko is reading to that uh, audience, that's a, there's, there's, it's a very, they're very loaded scenes. That's not just the audience within the film. It's definitely to a, a cinema audience too, who are presumably meant to be finding the, those quite Sadian texts and their particular manner of delivery quite titillating. Uh, for my part, I shan't say how I was moved or otherwise by them. <laughs> I, can I, I, I will say sure. that I was actually v- aroused. And the reason I'm bringing it up, and, you know, as I said at the, the beginning, it's a hoot. I mean, so Park Chan-wook is, a, is such a, uh, a stylish, uh, interesting, uh, visually opulent. Baroque is the perfect word, um, the director. What I've found, but... What has stayed with me about the film and what I can't reconcile with this is a really strange um, kind of the the se- sexuality uh, of the Sarah Waters. And I like Sarah Waters. Uh, Tipping the Velvet, I think, is a terrific book. But that 
and I know she's Welsh, so I'm going to, I don't, I'm, I may get in trouble for using the word Anglo here in mm. that sense, but there is something comparatively. about, comparatively, something about that eroticism, which is almost pragmatic in, in English language write, writing, even the most um, erotic of writing, coming against uh, a tradition which is Japanese, which is a much more, uh, for, for me, from my reading, and I'm not pretending I'm an expert, but both in um, visual language and in literary language, is a much more perverse, kind of fascinating, dark um, exploration. And it's like the two, the two forms of eroticism don't quite work for me in the film. Um, that, that, so the moments I, w- were, I was aroused was actually in the moments where it seemed like the, uh, what that the film was being most critical about. Um, uh, uh, what the politics of arousal is doing. I'm, I'm not being very clear because I'm still confused about how I feel about it. And I think part of it is also because he, as a Korean director, he's chosen to adapt this story into set it in the 30s when the Japanese were occupying Korea. And we, you know, we know that the the terrible history of that occupation, and particularly what was done to women's bodies. And I think all those things are at play subterranean in a subterranean level in this film that seems on the surface to be quite fun and um frivolous but it's, there's something seriously uh difficult about it and i still haven't quite worked yeah, out I, how i feel about it i i think he understands that's what his park chan wook recently a fantastic fest um said that his favorite film is abel ferrara's Ms. 45 and that was the missing piece of the puzzle for me he's a lot like ferrara in a very different cultural context he knows how to push the envelope just too yeah. far to make you uncomfortable and to me everything about this film is about colonial power and the idea of these two women hooking up in in what is often framed as old-fashioned exploitation vignettes really i mean these are these are quite saucy smutty scenes um he pushes it just a little bit too far to make people uncomfortable and to me it's just about them banding together to basically just kind of shag their way through colonialism like we're just it's all about you know colonialism is gendered male in this film um whether it's japanese or or Korean, and I think it's. I think there's a lot going on in this film that it will take me a while to unpack. I mean, there is a moment where they're talking about the aesthetics of the Japanese and the Korean, and he, you know, the, one of the characters says, I, "I prefer the Japanese because of the cruelty." I guess for me, the tension in the film is that it's actually because I think um, he's a director that truly can get to the perverse and can be cruel. That it's the cruelty in the film that is most vivid. And We're done. We're done. That is three films about books that we just talked about. Thank you for listening to us on Plato's Cave tonight. I'm Alexandra Helen Nicholas, joined by Christos Chalkas and Ceres Howard and the wonderful Carl Chapman behind the panel for us tonight. We've been talking about Joe Cinque's Constellation and Julieta, which are both on limited release, and The Handmaiden is an exclusive at Cinema Nova. We'll be back next week with Thomas Caldwell, but for now, here's Jason Moore with Local and or General. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.